Good day. Welcome to The Trendy Place. This is The Trend Podcast with Justin A. Williams, and I'm here to bring you content from all across the spectrum that is meant to enliven you, make you thrive, and also educate you. Today, we have a great guest on today. It's Jesse Campo-Amor. He is a fantastic leader in the community in New York who has spearheaded the campaign and the success of bringing cannabis to New York, as well as he also has a law firm, and he also worked on the COVID policy as well in New York. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Jesse, how's it going, man? Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good Good morning. morning. Uh, Jesse Campo-Moore here, uh, CEO and founder of Campo-Moore & Sons. As Justin kind of kind of uh, highlighted, you know, the last two years of my career were with the governor, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, as a senior advisor. I came on six months before the pandemic started, and primarily my focus was going to be on helping to pass the MRTA, the Marijuana Regulation Taxation Act. Uh, little did we know that this massive pandemic was going to hit our city, hit our state. Um, so the governor had made me the point of the Vaccine Equity Task Force, which was wow. really focused on getting shots in arms for our black and brown uh, stakeholders in our in our state, and so uh, left it left the governor's office uh, shortly after the attorney general dropped her report. Started my own practice, so uh, really advising and working with clients, kind of navigating the regulatory space. You know, really what we do in Compromore and Sons is about opening up doors and providing opportunities for those that otherwise would never have a chance. Um, and uh, you know, we're doing that. We're doing that every day, and it's pretty exciting and stuff. So, thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here this morning. Of course, of course, you know, in our audience, we, we, we tend to talk about the dearth, the lack of kind of businesses or law firms that have black and brown names on them, um, particularly in urban areas where we populate, right? I mean, there's so many of us in Queens and Bronx and Brooklyn, Manhattan. Uh, we really should have better representation and you're doing that. You know what, what, what first of all, thank you. What, what, what I experienced and what I found is that a lot of these white shoe firms end up going to a person like me, end up going to one of our black and brown operatives to get connections to those communities. And I think what a lot of us started to realize was why be the middleman, cut, you know, cut that out. Like where we are the entry points into these communities. Why not provide these services directly instead of serving as a middleman for another firm that's getting paid a boatload to then on, you know, subcontract us. Why not just remove that, that element of the, of the chain and step right in and fill that gap. And so I, you know, I think, what I'm seeing across the state, you know, t- to your point, is a lot more black and brown firms starting to sprout up. I think folks are realizing, you know, we are the real access to the community. Um, why not just provide that service directly? And, and uh, you know, so far, so good. But, but uh, you know, I think this is a trend that hopefully you'll see more of um, as more, more people come to, come, come to age uh, and figure out what to do next in their careers. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. During the pandemic, I started a business with my friend. Uh, he's Indian. I'm mixed. Uh, it's called Policy Titans. And, you know, we, we try to do the same thing. We consult with nonprofits all the time. We consult with businesses on like Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Uh, not to toot my own horn, but you gotta. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's really what, you know, my father and his generation, the civil rights generation really wanted was to see uh, the collusion of black and brown businesses together mm. to really create equitable and accessible change in New York uh, and, 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 and across the country. And I think, you know, sometimes that word equity gets in, into a, gets into a lot of controversy with some people, you know, um, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think you're hitting a, a really salient, like a pertinent point. I think, you know, equity is something that, 
some folks try to take advantage of, right? They'll, they'll use it mm-hmm. as an entry point into a program that really wasn't targeted or meant for them. You know, I, I compare, right. you know, when we, when we use the equity in the conversation of cannabis and all these other issues, I compare mm-hmm. it to where we were kind of during the whole green rush economy uh, when we talk about green jobs. And folks are like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, this is a green job. This is a green job. And it's like, well, is the janitor that's working at an environmentally friendly facility, is that a green job or is like the actual mm-hmm. like guy that's fixing the uh, the um, the propeller prop? At a wind at a wind energy turbine uh, facility is that a green job, right? And so, you know, when we look at equity in New York, especially around cannabis, we're really thinking about ownership of licenses, reinvestment in community by in communities that were most mm-hmm. devastated by the war on drugs, and workforce opportunities, workforce development, mm-hmm. uh, reentry for those coming out of the the prison industrial complex, those coming back from war. Um, are there jobs, are there quality jobs that folks can have access to in, in this market? Because when we're talking about cannabis specifically, mm-hmm. you're talking about an industry that less than 7% of the legal industry have people of color and women in executive level positions. Um, and that, yeah. you know, I don't know how you feel about that, but that when I say that number, it really doesn't sit well with me because this is an industry, quite right. frankly, that we help create. Um, right. And so that, you know, to see now the lack of representation uh, is, is an issue about equity that, you know, we need to focus on because I think to your point, there are those that would love to really, really try to make uh, equity as an ambiguous uh, of a concept as possible in order to mm-hmm. undermine its, its its true effort and uh, and, and opportunity. So, um, yeah, we got to lock in on what that equity, what, what does it mean when we say equity? What are real what are real measures that state and private partners can can think about uh, as, as contributing to the equity cause? Um, mm-hmm. And together, hopefully we can help change the paradigm. That's great, man. So what were some of the difficult, like, you know, when I was thinking of of years ago, when I was thinking, you know, maybe uh, New York will legalize cannabis and things like that. And you compare that with the war on drugs. You know, um, the war on drugs back in the 80s was really focused when they did the propaganda on how the Bronx and Brooklyn looked at the time. I remember Nancy Reagan was filmed walking through the Bronx and they compared it to, uh, you know, Vietnam and Baghdad and all these places. And I think there's just so much misinformation out there about the product. What what kind of what kind of things can we clear up about uh, cannabis? So, look, and I think part of what you're speaking to is a a real experience from our communities, right? Like like Mm -hmm. for our grandparents and elders that had cousins, nephews, sons that were on the corner that Mm -hmm. either got arrested or experienced some violence. Like there's deeply ingrained trauma that's associated with that. You know, I think when we think about about, you know, the history and we think about where we are now and, and the misperceptions, you know, I think our communities are starting to open up to the, the decriminalization component of legalization, specifically mm-hmm. meaning Johnny can get out of jail, right? Johnny can come home. I think right. what, what where we need to take that next step, step is the economic empowerment opportunities. And quite mm-hmm. frankly, even the, the health components and safety, right? I think what's, what's oftenly misunderstood is that if you open up a dispensary in a community, we find crime drops in that immediate area by 20, 22%, right? Wow. I, did, I did not know that. Yeah. Right. And when you tell people that they're like, wow, this is an interesting fact. When you open up a dispensary in the community, opioid overdoses within that radius dramatically drop by 20 percent. Right. And so these are numbers that I think when you tell people they're like, wow, these are actually positives potentially for opening up a store. I think that what, what there's what's deeply ingrained in their psyche is the trauma associated with 
the drug the drug trade and and the the, the crime the criminal and the violent elements that were a part of that. I think what, what we're trying to do is take the corner boy and put them into the corner store. Mm-hmm. And and if we can do that, the economic empowerment that comes with that, right? The the ability for economic stimulus in that community to be something real and palpable uh, yeah. becomes immediate, right? And I think, right. look, I think one piece that we need to kind of recalibrate ourselves on is the idea of this generational wealth kind of conversation that we've, we've all been having and, and a lot of people are talking about it, right? Like cannabis eventually will build generational wealth. It can, but it's not going to happen in a year, in two years, right? It's going to, it's going to take a longer time for that kind of wealth to be generated. There are things that have to happen on the federal level in order for the city to, to truly actualize the value of these licenses. You know, I think too often I hear in conversations, Oh, I'm going to get a license in the next three years. I'm going to have generational wealth. And it's like, mm. I think we're going to find a lot of people disappointed with the challenges, right? You know, because right. 280E, right, all these complex elements about federal taxes, the inability to deduct business expenses, um, all these different components are going to make it hard to realize that value initially. And so it's going to be interesting to see how people, how the conversation kind of changes over time when people realize like, oh, this is a grind. I'm not going to be able to build that million dollar nest egg or multi-million dollar nest egg as fast as I thought I could. Well, people, people tend to want things immediate. You know, they tend to want a quick turnaround. And especially somebody who maybe enjoys uh, the green monster uh, may, may be a little impatient. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think that uh, what you're saying is, is really true about generational wealth is that our communities have particularly been uneducated about such things. Not only have we been denied or there have been times where we've been building it and it's been attacked, but we've been uneducated about it. And I find that to be within all black and brown communities. I teach at a school out here in Long Island. And, um, you know, it's mostly Hispanic, but there's black kids too. And I, I, I teach this every Friday. We have a kind of current events Friday. Mm. So I'll do a study hall and I'll talk about cryptocurrency, whatever the kids want to talk about. Okay. And when I mention things like generational wealth, you know, investment strategies, all those things, they're like the lights just flick on. They, they want, they love it. They want to hear about it, but they've never learned about it. And I think, you know, funny how through kind of the cannabis story that we're able to teach people about this and, and, and get that moving. Listen, I, 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 first of all, the work that you're doing is so important because financial literacy, I think what we're learning as we go through this process in New York, right? We're now in, in the first round of applications for people specifically that were justice involved um, meaning that they've had a, an, a conviction on cannabis in the state of New mm-hmm. York. Um, there was also a business requirement as part of the criteria. They had to have had a business that was profitable for two years. Okay. Um, and what we're finding as we work with those folks to prepare those applications is that there's all this jargon in, in the financial place, in the financial, from capital table mm-hmm. to, to liabilities and assets and, and everything deeper than that, that a lot of our folks, like the, the words themselves are not familiar to our, our people, but the concepts are not hard to grasp, right? Like because right. a lot of these folks are already been in some form of business. Um, and so it's what I'm learning is like there's a glossary of terms that immediately become intimidating for us because we don't know them. But 
Our people understand the concepts because they've had to survive. They've had to to figure out a way to get through. Um, and so a lot of these concepts are not alien and foreign to them. It's the words that are being used to describe them. And so, you know, financial literacy becomes this piece where it's so critically important. Because to your point, um, if I put somebody in the room with an investor or, or with a regulator and they start, you know, pumping out some 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 uh, some jargon, and we're looking back, like like just speaking Chinese, or starry eyed, mm-hmm. we're out of the game. Right. And so part of what we need to do is, is really prepare ourselves with what, what is the language? What is what, what is the jargon? How do we become cu- uh, uh, accustomed to it and comfortable with it? Because the concepts are so easy for our people to grasp. Um, and so that's where like, I, I see the hurdle happening sometimes with the, with this literacy component is how do we get our people comfortable just with the jargon? Because that that's really that's to me, that's really been the biggest obstacle in some cases. And you're right. Like our parents, my mom didn't teach me financial literacy. Right. She never taught mm-hmm. me about a bank account, what to do. And that's not something that, that we learned. Um, and, and, and those become critical skills to be successful in these businesses. And so the work that you're doing, the work that others are doing to help to bring folks along in that process, I think will, will make such a difference down the road. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And speaking of process, you know, uh, what 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 was your process in terms of becoming successful in this endeavor, uh, particularly in New York? And what did you feel about New York being maybe the perfect place for this kind of action? Yeah. So it's really, you know, my story is unique uh, in some ways. In some ways, it's not unique at all. Right. It's very mm-hmm. similar to a lot of people. Look, I you know, I, I was a kid. I was born and raised in New York City uh, in the middle of Manhattan. Um you know, as a young person, you know, had some experience with cannabis, didn't really do anything substantial. But, you know, I feel like everybody had some type of brush in, either was consuming or selling or something. Of um, and then I ended up uh, a couple of years back landing at a, a municipal lobbying firm called Capolino and Company, which is the largest municipal lobbying firm in the country. Um, and they had not they didn't have a cannabis practice group at that point. Um, mm-hmm. But I was rolling around with some of my clients who were who are from Canada and they were in the in this limousine kind of, you know, peacocking and beating their chest about how they're going to dominate the cannabis industry in New York. Right. How they're going right. to take it over. And I sat there incredulous and absolutely blown away and being like, how are some guys that are not even from our city going to make those kind of claims? And so I said, I, I got to get involved in a, in a material way, in a substantial way. And so I approached the president of our company, Jim Capolino, and said, hey, I know a bunch of these light, white shoe firms are not involved in this work, but um, we should we should figure out how to position ourselves in it. And to, to his credit, he had the foresight to say, you know, I trust you. I think this is a good opportunity. Go build a practice group. And so he gave us some money. We ran around the country. We did some research and development. Uh, just talked to some of the best minds in cannabis on the on the regulatory side and on the operator side, just to learn about what what they're doing in the industry, what they see coming down the pipeline, um, and then came back with that knowledge to, to New York and built out you know a, a pretty multi million dollar practice business on cannabis. Uh, and so that was my first kind of official foray into the industry. When the governor approached me about joining about joining the administration, you know, I negotiated. I said, I, want, I really want 60 to 80 percent of my portfolio to be focused on the cannabis piece. Um, and that's part of what I negotiated for myself. And because I was already in a strong position, I had a job that was paying me more than the government could pay me. Um, yeah. And I was very comfortable and they were coming to me. I was in a strong negotiating position. And so they gave me exactly what I asked for. Um and at that point, you know, it was just really about leaning in and using what I knew and being very honest about what I didn't know uh, to learn 
And, you know, look, the wisest man is the one that knows they know nothing, right? And I think people yes. come through a situation acting like they know everything they can't learn. And I was highly aware and sensitive of what I didn't know. I didn't know the business of cannabis. I didn't know the compliant industry of cannabis. Um, and so that I spent the next year really, you know, diving headfirst and, and learning learning that, that component. Um, and so when, you know, the time came to negotiate a bill, you know, I was in a strong position to, to help the state and to help, uh, you know, our, our folks um, get a bill passed that is being touted as one of the most equitable, forward-thinking, comprehensive pieces of, of, of cannabis legislation in the country. Now, the key is how we execute and implement right. Right. But but the the the, the concept, the the foundation, the building blocks are there for a pretty equitable bill. Um, and so the part of this is, is just, you know, sometimes biting off more than you can chew is part of the process. Right. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. realizing I have a limited skill. I have a limited like knowledge of this of this issue, but I want to learn more. I'm going to jump in head first. I'm going to find people that can help give me that information. Uh and and put my trust in them that, that they'll give me the right intel to to prepare myself. And I, I was fortunate enough to have that. But that's what it takes in some cases, right? Like what folks need to realize is the inf- we live in a world where technology, information is out there. Learning about how to access it, learning about how to interpret it becomes part of the challenge. But it's there for you to grab. Um, and not taking advantage of it almost almost is like it, 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 it should be a sin. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Um, but that yeah, that's really how I got in, into the space, and uh, and you know the rest is history. Well, that's a remarkable story, and it really has created history because Joe Biden recently announced that four uh, cannabis crimes, or at least cannabis um, uh, indictments. Uh, I'm sorry, not indictments, but if you were found guilty uh, of a crime right. involving cannabis, now you are uh, expunged of that of your record, right. um, which obviously tail us back to what's been going on in New York. I mean, there's no way you can't relate the two together. So, you know, I was thank you for that in your work. But also what I what I think is interesting that you're talking, you're talking about leverage, right? Creating leverage for yourself. And I think for the for anybody listening, if some of my students will be listening to this, um, I always tell them, you got to create leverage for yourself and take a class on negotiation. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I took a wonderful class on conflict and negotiation. You know, get your certification in it because negotiation is so important to any f- kind of business dealing, knowing how to look someone else in the eye, knowing the language they're speaking, knowing how to convince them of your argument, right? Knowing how to concede a point, just the strategies that people have that I'm sure you have that you've employed because you've done so well that, you know, we, we got to teach the the youth these kinds of skills, these, the skills that they're not learning in some schools, you know, the the, the real stuff. That's right. And and look, I think there's some people that, that say, well, that comes naturally to me. And I think, look, some people are naturally better at some of these things. Right. But of course, even if you have natural instinct, taking the time to perfect your craft, taking the time to get to get to get all the elements uh, to, to be comfortable with all the components of a negotiation, I think will only just make you a stronger negotiator, but that can help negotiate your bottom end. Um I can't I can't emphasize how much, Justin, you're just spot on on this point. I mean, I think, you know, from a personal, professional uh, and career standpoint, you know, your ability to negotiate on your behalf will dramatically change your trajectory, Mm -hmm. how much you make in in your salary, the kind of job and and portfolio that you have. Um, All of that is negotiable. And I think what, what we aren't taught is that everything is on the table for negotiation. Yeah. Right. Until yeah. they tell you it's not. 
Everything is on the table from your salary to the vacation days you have to the health insurance package to your benefits. All of that is negotiable. Um, and I think too often we're in this mind state where it's like, be, be thankful that you have a job, be lucky, be thankful that you have this opportunity and don't push. And it's like our counterparts that are a little less melanated have no problem pushing. They're told right, they right. want to push, push, push. Exactly. I, I, I was taught there's nothing more powerful than the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> and, uh, and I took that to heart because I've seen it. I've seen it in, in play, right? I've seen these guys as a boss. I've seen these guys walk into my office and say they deserve a raise. Right, right. They deserve it. And I was like, well, <laughs> talk about that. Let's unpack that a little bit. What, yeah. what about your job performance makes you feel like you – well, I've been here for a year. So I, it's like, wow. Um, wow, yeah. Especially because, millennials and Gen Z. Uh, the stats show that our generations – uh, these two younger generations are packed with people who say, I demand it right now. I'm not waiting. I will quiet quit if you do not give me a promotion right now. It's uh, it's it's it is mind blowing. Right. And, and so I, I would just tell everybody listening and like take the time to understand like yourself, where, where your deficiencies are exactly. and, start, and start, you know, if Justin's your teacher, right. If you have people like that in your life that are here, that have the resources and have the desire to help teach and help share, lean right. in, take advantage of that. This right. is like, that is such an amazing, unique opportunity that will make a difference. I, I can tell you, I had a teacher like Justin once in my life and it made all the difference in my life. Right. But you have to ask, you have to take advantage of it. It's not going to, it's not just going to be there for you unless you ask for it, right? What they say, closed mouths don't get fed. Exactly. So, so you know, always keep that in mind. I mean, what's the moral of Oliver Twist, the the, the play and the book, right? He's the only kid who says, please, sir, may I have some more? Well, and then right. he becomes the hero of the story, right? And he, he, he his, his life becomes more advantageous. And I know for a fact that the author of that book wrote that in there as that's the philosophy. That's the point, right? And I think um, we all, I, I try to teach this to my kids too, that find a philosophy. Even if you're religious, that's great. But find a philosophy. Find something that works for you that can teach you how to take steps in life, how to react to anger, how to react to sadness, how to uh, approach another person, how to deal with disappointment, right? And, 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 and so I think we all need to have people books, authors in our lives that really stimulate us and 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 inspire us to want more um, out of life, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so like, you know, f for yourself, who, who could people that are 15, 14, 16, uh, young people like us, or even white kids, who can, who can they look up to uh, that you've looked up to that can make them successful? Wow, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I think of like, who are my heroes? Who are the people mm -hmm. that inspired me in my life? Um, you know, there's this one gentleman, I don't know if he's that relevant now, but when I was a kid, there was a gentleman from Canada named Craig Kielberger. Okay. Craig Kielberger was a 15 year old who had learned about sweatshops in India and how uh, in India, as a young child, people are sold into indentured servitude. Right. Um, and all of these fine Persian rugs and all these rugs that we're getting from over there are made from child labor. And he got a law passed in India that said uh, any rug that's made with child labor um, it has a stamp on the bottom of the rug so that consumers know that they're purchasing rugs that are made with child labor and therefore have the choice and the option not to purchase those rugs. 
Mm. He did this at the age of 13, 14, right? Changed the law in Canada and made this national, built this national campaign, Craig Kilberger. And as a young person, I think I was the same age at that time. And I, and I, I watched this because I think a lot of us kind of been indoctrinated or, or have had this, this feeling, this lingering feeling, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, nothing's going to change. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what I saw from that example was look at this guy. He's 13 years old. He's my age. He, he decided to talk passionately about an issue that he cared about and made a significant difference in it. And the impact was international. Because now children in India now might have a better quality of life and a better opportunity to experience their childhood because we've, in effect, destroyed the sweatshop practices uh, of that nation. Um, and so, you know, that that that's the kind of stuff. Those are the kind of stories that, like, turn me on, you know. But I also had coaches in my life um, on the football field and on the basketball field that really helped me understand how to translate some of the values that we learned in sports, such as pride, purpose, and passion, right? Those are co- those are concepts that you can translate to the academic arena and can equal success for you there as well. Um, and so, I, you know, I was really lucky to have coaches, to have some figures uh, like the Craig Kilbergers to look up to um, that just inspired me, inspired me mm-hmm. and, and opened my eyes to the possibilities in this world. You know, I think once you accept that anything is possible, once you put your mind to it, the doors just open up. They fling open. Yeah. Right? And I think yeah. too often we we set these limitations on our own abilities. We set these limitations on our own ex- expectations that kind of lower the bar, lower right. the expectations. And and I what I would anybody listening, what I would dare all of you to do is to set the bar as high as possible. Shoot for the stars, guys. Even if mm-hmm. you miss, or like we say shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you're amongst the stars. Right. Um, and so I just think, you know, too often because of where we grew up or because of the, the conditions of our environment, you know, people are told we're never going to be anything. We're no good. You know, we're only going to do so much in our lives. And it's like bury those voices in the basement and listen to the voices that are telling you you can be anything you want if you work at it. Mm-hmm. Because I'll tell you what, I, I came from a, a world where I wasn't supposed to be more than a football player. I wasn't supposed to be more than yeah, an athlete statistic. and a statistic. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting in front of you right now, doing way more than that when, when than what I was supposed to be, right? And so, yeah. you know, there are models out there, there are examples. The, the 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 key issue is the mental toughness and mental fortitude to say I can be something more, but I have to work at it. I have to earn it. Yeah, and that, yeah. uh, that's possible. Confidence. It's it's that's, it's self esteem. It's a big deal. Yeah, self esteem, and it's it's, it's 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 um. You know what I what I and I thank you for saying that. And I, I hope uh, young people are listening, saying, you know, uh, regardless of my situation, I can I can pursue, I can move forward. Because honestly, the obstacle is always the way. You know, um, Ryan Holiday talks about that. He's a Stoic uh, philosopher, and I, I read his stuff, and I'm really into Stoicism. And it talks about how. You know, no one can make you feel anything that you don't want to feel over time. I mean, obviously, when someone says something, it wounds you. But over time, you're making that choice, you know, and you can choose to recover. You know, it's like um, any warrior ethic uh, across the world. What do they always talk about? We get hit, we recover, we attack again, you know, and that's got to be your mentality in life. And unfortunately, we don't have classes that are just on mentality. If I could if I could if I could redo the school system. I would start off, I wouldn't start off with math or anything. I would start off with just mentality. Mm. What is going to be, 
your thought process and your attitude in life, right? So and I would give you a school, man. That's that's a great idea. And I think I, you know, I don't like making things mandatory, but I think sports have to be mandatory, at least for one year. Yeah, you know, get one year of just a good lesson in how to overcome physical pain, obstacles, things like that. You know, when I was running, I ran cross country in high school nice. and I had a, I had a race. It was my last, I, I was on the borderline in terms of making the state final. And, um, I was just trying to search for, because I pushed myself physically as fast as I could go. But my, my mom, my dad said, there's, there's another level. There's another, if you tap into it, there's a spiritual level of the run that if you tap into, you can go faster than you ever thought. So that morning, I watched Chariots of Fire. Great movie. I love that movie. Great movie, right? And for our audience who doesn't know, it's the movie about um, how the guy broke uh, the four-minute mile. That's right. And his journey. After I saw that movie, I was crying that morning. I was like, I think I'm ready. And those tears like were there. And then I, I wore like uh, my dream catcher because I'm, I'm, I'm part Native American. And I went out there and I just blasted it I, I there was this tall guy who i knew always paced an 18 minute mile 18 minute three miles and i said if i keep up with that guy he's my height i i'll i'll guaranteed i'll make states i was like that's it that's all i gotta do right if i do it i will make states it's a simple math equation i paced with him i paced with a pacement and then all of a sudden he dropped off and then i didn't have my pace pace guy anymore so i was like oh it's not his day today damn it and so then i was like you know what i got a choice i can stay here and slow down, I can go faster. So I found another shorter guy. This guy was short, quick. I just paced with him, got to the end, and I'm just screaming. I'm banshee yelling. Anything I can do to force myself in there. I got to the final point. I get to the finish line. I fall down. I'm, I'm stumbling all over. And the person that I stumbled on their shoes was my father waiting for me over there. And, and he said, that's your PR. You know, you got your personal record. I got uh, an 1835, and I was like, holy wow. crap. <laughs> wow. wow. And it's and then right here, the challenge, the battle was all up here, right? It was and, all in the mind. Yeah, I, I love that story, man, because I do think sports does create that 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 test of character, that opportunity to really see what, what all of us are capable of, right? Like, right. your body can only, your body can only go as far as your mind will let it. Uh, and there's times where we think our body is about to shut down. And then, like you said, you just find that that deeper place to dig to and, and to find. And all of a sudden, you're squeezing out that last bit of energy to get you over that finish line. That's an amazing story. I mean, look, guys, I, I to, to the point that you made earlier, even as a, a very successful celebrated operative, I've been in rooms with the governor and down where I felt like I didn't belong in that room, right? You, you hear about this concept in, imposter syndrome, right? Like it's a real right. thing that we have deeply ingrained into our, our psyche. And uh, it's something that I battle to this day, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm the only one that looks like I'm the only, I'm the only person that looks a Brown person in these rooms that looks like the way I do that comes from my background. And I'm looking around saying, do I really belong in this room? Right. And that and that is only an answer that I can answer. Right. Nobody else is going to validate that. I have mm -hmm. to come to a place where I say I do belong here. And I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. And I think, again, that that's all a battle with with ourselves, with mm -hmm. our own our own mind, our own self-doubts, our own insecurities. And when you realize that there's something so liberating about that, because you're your only obstacle, you're the yeah. only person in your way. Yeah. That means you can get out of your way too. It's just right. there's something liberating about that versus like this big behemoth object that's stopping you from getting what you want. It's not, it's, it's you. Uh, right. 
And so the sports helps build that kind of confidence and helps you test yourself. There are other things that do that as well, but I love I love what you're saying. I think sports is a definitely a form to uh to to learn that lesson. Such a such a valuable lesson. Yeah. Or martial arts, what whatever you want to take, you know, That's playing right. chess, things That's like right. that. As long as as long as you 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 get proficient in overcoming some kind of feeling of oh wow, I don't want to do this. Right? I mean, there's a gut check moment. That's right. I I remember I was uh I I, I took up rowing when I was in college. Uh and there was this gut check moment where we were we had done as much work as I'd ever done in a practice. And the coach said, All right, second hour. <laughs> I'm in this boat. I'm in this boat. I'm holding on. And I'm like, oh, you just, <laughs> kill me now. Bro, you just killed my cat. Like, stop. Like, I can't. I can't do this. And and when you're in a boat, it's it's such that you have to sit up straight. Right. Because if you start slouching over, the coach oh. is gonna see, but also you'll fall out. So you need to sit up straight and and that that core work you're constantly doing. And when you go back and forth and back and forth, for the first hour, it's like you can get really motivated like you're in a video game. You know what I mean? Like the rain's falling. It's all epic. But that second hour is that's something else. Yeah, yeah, that that's all heart right there, right? It's like it's like like you're talking about running, it's like hitting the wall and just like it's all heart at that point, right? Like right, like right. your legs are jelly, your body's turns to jelly, and at that point it's all just like what's what are you made of? Kind of kind of moments. Look, I, you know I, what happens in some ways is once you start getting accustomed to that, people start seeking that out mm. and like looking for that and putting create trying to recreate that moment time and time again. It becomes addictive for some people. Um, but it's like getting to that point point first, right? I, I you know I have a six year old son that we're playing baseball now, and and I see it his fear that he has of the baseball, mm. right? And, and like we're working through fear. But like finally, he he overcame that fear, and he hit the ball the other day. He almost hit it out the park, and you saw that moment of like, "Wow, I yeah. can do this!" Right? Like I'm capable of it, and it's only me that's in my way. Um, and so it's like almost like what what can one do to recreate that moment to create that that kind of scenario that that forces that kind of realization? Um, you know, seek that out because I, I promise you. You know, it, it's something that if you if you go through and, and like end up on the better side of, it's only going to prepare you for the rest of your life in, in a positive way. And I think it's a lesson for people of any age. Um, right. <laughs> I, I noticed right. with um, my my mother and my grandfather. My grandfather's about ninety two years old now. He just turned ninety two. <laughs> and my mother, you know, uh, they're both uh, two people who I feel like there was a time where things got uh, flat. Right, especially with my grandfather. My grandfather fought in uh, Korea. Wow. He worked on a farm when he was growing up. Constant challenges. I mean, yeah. snakes and yeah, the yeah. horse run the, yeah. runs away. He's hunting squirrel and the squirrel has rabies. I mean, he's he's doing all these things that constantly testing his metal. And I think that's why he has lived as long as he's lived because he was tested so much in life and overcame. And he has that, what in in in, in, um, in Taoism and in uh, Buddhism, they would call the chi, right? Mm-hmm. He has that strong chi, that strong body energy that's been honed. But recently, you know, he's been kind of like, you know, I, I don't really know what to do every day, you know, blah, 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 what do I do? And he's looking for a new challenge. So what I did was uh, a couple of years ago, I gave him a kettlebell. Okay. And I said, I said, hey, if you work this kettlebell every day, you know, uh, this will be your challenge. You know, f- focus on it like it's a challenge. Focus on it until you can get it over your head. And he works that every day. 
he, he takes that, he puts it on his foot. He does some weird exercises. He, he makes up exercises. And I think it's a part of the reason why he's, he's still very, very vigorous and he still drives mm-hmm. and he still does everything that I can do is just because of that kettlebell. Right. And it's not just for, for anybody listening. It's not just lifting the weight. It's having a routine that challenges you every day that you get up for. Right. That you say, you know what? I look forward to doing this tomorrow. I look forward to doing that tomorrow. You know, and I think for you and I, we were both not only, um, in business, but people that are in the public field. I think that it's our duty to preach those kind of lessons to people because we know it made us successful. And we, I, I don't like it sometimes when you, you get people and they, they pretend to be gurus and all these things and they keep teasing the secret sauce, right? They're like, you no. want the secret sauce to pay twenty five ninety nine, and then you can, you know, like this information should be free. I agree. I agree. And, and I, I think, you know, I, look, there's been a lot of folks that are trying to be gatekeepers to, to information, right. gatekeepers to opportunities and access. And I think what I'm seeing and, and it's encouraging is there's a lot in our generation that experienced those gatekeepers before us. That we're gonna do it differently, right? Like, like we we have to open up doors for the, for this next generation. You know, it, it's the challenges is is making sure they take those opportunities. You know that I, I what what's always excited me in my life was you know there's a saying that says you can only bring a horse to the river, you can't make him drink the water. You know, for me, what's made me so excited in my life is creating those opportunities where, where they get to the water and watching them drink it. Um, and I learned at a young age, like that's what that's what just makes me excited to to like to be alive. And so I've thought, you know, for the rest of my life, how do I find opportunities to continue to 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 get that feeling? Um, and so like like your like your grandfather, right? Like I find different challenges, new opportunities to to like succeed in that outcome and creating opportunities and experiencing people take advantage of those opportunities. And so here we are in cannabis, right? Like this is an opportunity of a lifetime, potentially. Um, right. There are people that have 30, 40 years experience with the plant, but because they've never filled out a request for a proposal or they've never done complex tax compliance, they're, they're saying, this is not for me. I can't right. do this. I'm not supposed to be in it. And it's just like that. That's the hurdle where it's like, yes, this is for you. Let's 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 build, you know, a level of support around you to provide that those those uh, technical and legal support elements and then get you in, get you in the program. Um, and that that to me is like, you know, seeing them come through that process on the other end, realizing they could always have done it. It just took it just took a little alteration to a couple of their of their outlook and also about what they were what they were digesting. Um made all the difference for them is like, is like, I just hope, I hope that can be replicated and, and can spread in our community to other people, right? Like what we need to do is stop making this the exception and make this the rule, right? Those that get out can no longer be the exception. They have to be a rule. And I right. think that that's going to require people like me and you coming together and thinking about how to build institutions and build support around folks to, to, to accomplish that end. But it also just takes every individual to take personal accountability for themselves and say, I'm no longer going to accept this reality. I'm no longer going to accept this struggle. I deserve something better. I deserve something more. And I'm going to do what it takes to get it. And that's 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 it. That's all. It's like you got to start from that, that level of determination and everything else follows. But if the mind is if you psych yourself out men- mentally, everything else is going to fall apart. 
Well, that's those are those are. I mean, those those are really powerful words and 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 great words to 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 end on as well. I mean, just to uh, the, to uh, for our audience to really repeat and last on. My last question though to you is, what's next? So, what do you see as in the next three to five years? Your your journey in this journey together as we as we work on this, and then just as a whole, what do you think is next? Thank you, thank you for asking that. Look, look, I think as as it regards to as a in regards to cannabis, uh, there are 10 big operators in the cannabis space now. We call them MSOs, multi-state operators. The guys that are running these companies used to be merger and acquisition executives, used to be mm-hmm. real estate or J.P. Morgan or Wall Street executives. None mm-hmm. of them actually come from cannabis. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what's, what's obvious in that, in that statement is that none of them have cornered the market. There is no you know, one operator that has cornered and dominated the market. And what I would tell you is in the next 10 years, none of those guys are going to be around. There's going to be a whole new set of companies to to be part of this market. I want to help be part of the creation of the first Black-owned, brown-owned MSO that dominates the market in cannabis because it has people that or have been experienced with the plant for the last 30 years, people that come from our communities, and people that know how to talk to consumers. Right. Mm-hmm. Expecting a Wall Street banker to talk to our consumers is a little asinine. Right. And so I'd like to be part of the creation of that, of that, of that kind of company, of that brand, that be an international brand and would dominate the market and be truly representative of our communities and our culture. Um, look, on a personal level, too, you know, I come from a city where predominantly the city is black and brown. Um, you know, we have, we have a black mayor in city hall right now. Uh, but I see no reason why we shouldn't have one day a Latino mayor in city hall or a mayor that represents other communities. I'd like to help build, uh, an institution that would, would solidify, that would guarantee that our, rep- that our representation is reflective of our demographics, right? Whether that's, mm-hmm. Uh, a leadership development institute for young operatives that want to learn more about the political system or a fundraising vehicle to support candidates that share our values. You know, we need to start thinking about how to build those institutions, create those mechanisms of support uh, to solidify our place in in this in this city, in this state, in this country. Um, and so I see myself as somebody that helps create, build those institutions um, usher them along uh, and and preserve preserve our future for 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 the uh, foreseeable time. So you know that's what I'd like to do. Maybe my business card reads chief of staff to, to city hall or chief of staff to the president or maybe you know CEO of of an MSO. Who knows? Um, but you know I think the sky's the limit. I know that's like a big <laughs> it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a wide array to to fall into. But um you know whatever it is, it's impactful. It's moving the needle uh, and it's continuing to usher in generations of leaders in our city and state uh, for the foreseeable future. So I really enjoyed this time with you, Justin, man. I, I hope we can talk more. Um, I'd love to come out, talk to your kids in the school, whatever, whatever, whatever makes sense. Um, sign me up because I think you're doing great work. Anything I can do to support you, brother, I'm, I'm in. I'm in for it. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate that. And I definitely will. We'll be in touch. Obviously, because I, I want to be right there with you creating that uh, MSO. That'd be great. Yes sir. yes, sir. I look forward to it. All right. Well, for our viewers, remember, you can like, subscribe, you can share this, you can comment as well. And if you've already done that, thank you. And remember, we are available on all platforms. That's Spotify, that's Google, and that's Apple. And for the rest of you, remember, we're better when we trend together. See you <laughs> next time, guys.